Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of EvalEdge, a podcast series by the European Evaluation Society that focuses on cutting-edge topics in evaluation. My name is Marco Lorenzoni, and today I will be your host together with my colleague Alena Lapo. Hello, everybody. Today we are delighted to have with us Michael Bamberger. Michael has a PhD in sociology and has been working in international development since 1965. After a decade of working with low-income urban communities in Latin America, he has spent 20 years with the World Bank working in the field of housing and urban development, development evaluation training, and gender development in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Middle East. For the last 20 years, Michael has worked as independent evaluation consultant, including assignment with 10 UN agencies, development banks, bilateral development agencies, foundations, and NGOs. Over the past five years, he has worked on the opportunities and challenges of integrating big data and data analytics into evaluation. He has focused on the application of big data in humanitarian field, but also more generally. And recently, he has worked with challenges on identifying potential sources of bias in big data and how it's applied in research and evaluation. He has presented and shares his findings in different fora, including the European, American, African, South African, and Latin American evaluation societies and networks. He has co-authored six books on evaluation strategies, mixed method and complexity-focused evaluation, and published numerous articles in leading evaluation journals. So welcome, Michael. Thank you very much for being here with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. It's a great pleasure for me to be with you. Michael, during this podcast, we will ask you to share your most recent reflections on possible sources of bias when using big data and data analytics in evaluation. But to get there, we'll firstly ask to introduce where the original idea to utilize big data, artificial intelligence, and data mining techniques in evaluation came from. Okay, so over the past 20 years, there has been a rapid evolution of new methods of collecting and analyzing large quantities of data, satellite images, cell phones, um, social media data, and, and many others. And this is just opening up the possibility for evaluators and researchers to access a much wider range of, of, of data. Some of the earliest applications of these new sources of data, which some people call big data when, it, when they get very large, um, have been in the field of program planning and design and management. And it's taken quite a long time for evaluators to, to get on board with these techniques. A study was conducted about five years ago, which estimated that only about 20% of evaluators were using big data in their research. And maybe less than half were, were even familiar with what big data was. That, that was five years ago. It's probably changing a little bit, but starting from quite a low base, However, over the past five years, most development agencies have created data center and innovation center, which has the purpose of making accessible big data to the agencies with which they work. However, my, my experience working with a number of these is that the linkages between the data centers that people working with big data and the evaluation office is often quite, quite weak. And a lot of the data scientists didn't perceive evaluation as one of the areas that they were, they, they were responsible for. But over the past few years, the use of big data is increasing slowly but steadily in the evaluation field. But I think it's still true to say that 
many evaluation offices, they're still just exploring how they can use big data, or they only use one particular kind of big data, but they don't look at the whole um, menu of, of different kinds that they could use. Um, when um, evaluators started to use big data, it was originally for fairly basic data collection tasks. They, they realized they could collect more data more quickly and, and more economically. And it's only quite recently they've begun to think about the more sophisticated kinds of, of data analysis. Some of the exciting trends are um, using artificial intelligence and machine learning to analyze the large volumes of administrative data, which many agencies have sitting there, for example, their evaluation reports over the last 30 years, which nobody knew how to use. So this is becoming quite an exciting field, how to use the, the data you already have. Um, then a second example, satellite images, which are very widely used, are beginning to be used to strengthen evaluation designs. You can construct a quasi-experimental design, selecting a, a, a match comparison group with satellites. So this strengthens the capacity of evaluations of many projects. And um, finally, work is starting to integrate different data sets into a, a single platform where you can get a much broader focus. Then um, COVID ha has encouraged agencies to look at the kind of data they already have and to analyze this data, as well as to, to use remote data collection techniques. So COVID has had quite an important role in stimulating the use of, of big data. So I, I think it's safe to say that big data is beginning to be steadily integrated into evaluation, but it, the process has still been quite slow. Thank you very much, Michael. I should say that I've been following um, your work on big data and some of your colleagues, uh, of course, thanks to the podcast, but also because uh, I participated and uh, listened um, your colleagues and you uh, in some of the fora. And I heard some of these uh, conclusions before. But what I wonder and interested in, uh, whether the recent COVID uh, crisis uh, actually triggered um, some wider application of big data. And uh, do you have some examples to share with us? One, one just as you say, in, in general, COVID has just forced organizations to use remote data collection, not all of which is big data, but it, it begins to, to move in, in, in that direction. Um, one, one of the new areas which not everybody is familiar with, um, which evolved during COVID is a infodemiology, which is the analysis of how data is disseminated and used. It started in the medical field, but it's, it's, it's going more, more broadly. So that, that's one of the fields which has come out of, of, the, um, of COVID. If we get a chance, we could mention there are some concerns about some of the issues with the kind of data collected remotely. A lot of agencies are saying, well, um, maybe we won't need to go back to the field because we can collect all of the data we, we need remotely. It's so much cheaper and um, so much easier to collect. And there, there are serious issues with this bias. Your, some groups are much easier to contact than others. So it's an exciting resource, but there are some, some biases. And so there's a concern if agencies just say after COVID, let's not bother to go back to the field. We can collect all we need sitting in our office. There are some issues there which are just beginning to be discussed. So um, I could just give one example of how big data is, is, is starting to be used in the humanitarian field. There was a, a project that UN Global Pulse conducted of looking at how you could use big data for strengthening um, humanitarian programs. And they showed that satellite images, um, mobile phones, the analysis of phone company 
records, social media analysis are all tools which are available for use in humanitarian programs. And just one area to finish, um, which is getting a lot of interest is the analysis of fake news and hate speech through the analysis of social media. In, in the humanitarian field, this is a, a big concern because whenever there's a, there's a flood or there's some epidemic, a lot of people say, well, th this is the refugees who are causing this problem. So being able to detect the, the, the creation of, of spread of false news is, is a very important. So there's a whole range of new applications which are, are starting to be come, come on board. Um, you, you mentioned, Michael, uh, that uh, um, evaluators we have been slow in taking up the challenge to integrate artificial intelligence into, into evaluation. And um, there may be multiple reasons for that. Uh, it's definitely a new field of analysis, but there, 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 there are uh, maybe other, uh, other reasons. Do you have any, uh, any reflection to share on uh, about the, the, the different uh, uh, reasons why, as evaluators, we were slow in taking up the challenge of integrating uh, uh, big data and artificial intelligence in, uh, in our work? There is still a, a big divide between data scientists and evaluators, how they think, how, how they think about causality. A lot of data scientists don't use theories of change, for example. There's a, a debates about whether you can use correlation to assess um, causality, issues of data quality. So there is still quite a big gap. Many um, data scientists don't have any training in evaluative thinking, and many evaluators have very little familiarity with big data. For example, the Evaluators Institute this year is just offering their first courses on um, machine learning. So it's still quite quite new. Um, also, just one thing which is often not mentioned, a lot of evaluators are concerned that they're going to lose their jobs, that agencies will be excited with these new technologies, and they say, we don't really need an evaluation office. We can collect all of the information re remotely. So th this is, this is a, a concern. But there, there are, even when people want to work together, there are these big challenges of just thinking differently. How do you define data? How do you collect it? How do you assess the quality? How do you use it for, for causality? So big data is expanding very rapidly in the development field in all areas, except it's much slower in evaluation still. Thank you, Michael. And um, indeed, I recall that we conducted a webinar where we invited both uh, uh, application of uh, big data and uh, also data scientists. Uh, it was a wonderful debate. So our listeners uh, might want to come back and to listen to uh, the recordings. We know that uh, during uh, American Evaluation Association, you are going uh, to present your work uh, on sources of bias uh, in big data. And I wonder if you would mind to share um, some of uh, those reflections with us um, in advance. C certainly. Um, I think this is an important issue which is just beginning to be addressed. Um, it's often claimed by uh, advocates of big data that big data is more objective because you eliminate human bias. In fact, all data analytics, big data collection, involves humans in deciding what you're going to be collecting, what are the questions you're going to be asking, who you're going to consult, how you analyze the data, how you interpret it. So bias, I, I'm not saying for a moment that big data is any worse in terms of bias. You find this in conventional evaluations. 
but the claims that, that big data is more rigorous, that AI doesn't ever make errors, means that you need to reflect on, on some of the, the causes of bias. I'll, I'll just mention very briefly four of the sources of, of potential bias in big data. The, the first one is that all humans, the thinking, the decision-making processes are affected by a particular socio-cultural political lens. And so if you're a, a politician deciding, for example, you're going to have a big program on addressing poverty, it's important, do you look upon poverty as a social issue, a racial issue, a political issue, or an economic issue? So the frame that you bring to this will very much influence how, how you think about the how you would address poverty. So, so human judgment is is comes in at all, all, all stages, but it's often not recognized. Somebody decides which data sets we're going to use, which ones we're not going to use. Are we going to include questions on social inclusion or are we not going to? So this is really important to un, un, understand. The feminists have done a lot of work on this of showing that many important issues don't get addressed because the decision makers haven't been focusing on some of the feminist questions. Like for example, there's relatively limited data on um, maternal mortality or violence against Asians or issues of violence against the LGBTQ communities because the people who have the power who make the decisions haven't thought of those issues as being critical. So the human judgment is inevitable, thank goodness. If everything was just run by machines, that would be really frightening. So, so the second point is who is at the table? Somebody decides who's going to be consulted when you're designing the study, when you're assessing the, how it's going, who you're going to interview. And if people are not at the table, their issues tend not to get addressed. Um, a lot of the work on COVID for quite a long time, they discovered that they weren't really understanding the special issues of the African-American community, the LGBTQ community, some of the minorities, because those people weren't initially at the table when the studies were being planned. So who is at the table is critical. Thirdly, there's just a lot of, of methodological and technical, technological issues, which I won't go into in, in, in detail now, but um, everybody brings a, a sectoral orientation. Um, if you're looking at health programs, do you just look at them through a health lens? Do you look at it through an employment lens? Do you look at it through a transport? And so inevitably, this is a, affects how you think about problems, what kind of data you're getting. Also, professional differences. Um, many economists would say we need to have quantitative data because it's more rigorous. And anthropologists would say, if you don't actually go and spend time in the community, you won't really understand the realities. So who is designing the study makes a big a big difference there's issues of, of a lot of the data is is, is not not complete um so there's a whole range of, of of technical issues and then just finally the organizational and and political factors um many people use a single sectoral perspective if you're in the ministry of education you think all problems of poverty are to do with education if you're in agriculture you think it's to do with nutrition so that's what one, one factor Academic perspectives and economists, uh, political scientists and nutritionists would have a different way of thinking about a problem, about what kind of data, how you analyze it. Then also there's the real world you know, pressures not to criticize your agency or the, or the government policies. So you may not focus on some, some questions. And then always the pressures to reduce the, the cost and time. So somebody might say, well, it'd be really great to go and spend time in the village, but we don't have the, 
the time or the money to do that. So we'll we'll just do the analysis remotely. So the, these sources of, of bias are there. I'm not saying they're any worse than they are in other kinds of evaluation, but they just they're often not 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 recognized. So this is, I think, a, a, a challenge for us in the the next stages of moving into the big data. These uh, reflections are very, uh, very important. Uh, I mean, uh, we are used uh, as evaluators to assess the validity and the pros and cons of each method before deciding and uh, selecting the methods that we are going uh, to, to employ in, uh, in our evaluation. And uh, indeed, uh, this is a perspective that we have to interiorize also when uh, assessing pros and cons and possible risks in, uh, uh, when using uh, big data in, uh, in evaluation. And uh, um, I was reflecting that maybe there are some other, let's say, induced or secondary effects that um, we have to uh, consider in terms of big data. For instance, one effect could be from one side, uh, a risk of market distortion, so a risk for uh, smaller companies to be excluded uh, from the market because they don't have the capacity of uh, processing big, uh, uh, big data. And this has also another side. So the other side of this is uh, a push uh, towards stronger alliances. Mm-hmm. So uh, building a relationship, building alliances between consulting companies and academia, for instance, or social resources in order to exploit the capacity where they are. Uh, I, I was also thinking that maybe the, we will discover in, in a short while that there will be some regulatory problems in the in the use uh, due to the territoriality uh, problems of data are exchanged over the internet for, um, uh, for uh, basically and uh, do, do you see any um, any factors that uh, can can go beyond the strict uh, uh, the strict uh, use of big data and that uh, that somehow could be impacted by by their use mm-hmm. yeah that, that's a very a very important question I'd just like to go back very quickly to your saying that evaluators review all the possible methods and select the the appropriate method. In my experience, most evaluators don't. They have their preferred method. Um, And when I was working at the World Bank, I interviewed a lot of of consultants, and I'd be halfway through explaining what the issues were that we're going to be studying. And they would say, well, I find that focus groups are always an excellent research technique. And uh, I said, well, you know, thank you. I'd like to go and talk to the next consultant because you don't even know what it is we're studying and you've already decided how to do it. Many organizations, without mentioning names, insist that randomized control trials are the only rigorous way of getting data. And so there's a lot of people have their their preference. If you're a, a feminist researcher, you think that you need to go and collect certain kinds of data, which an economist may not be, even be able to pronounce the names of some of the techniques which the, the feminists use. So, so that, that's one, one issue. Um, just one, one factor, in addition to the ones you're mentioning, which I think is important, are the, the institutional factors that many agencies, are, many government agencies, are very reluctant to use data which they haven't collected themselves. And so, or... So, so you 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 get this this continuation of the silo that you know you're in the Ministry of Health you only collect data f- from your ministry and you don't look at transport you don't look at em- em- employment so th- th- those administrative barriers I, I think are are important um, in in addition to the we talked about the professional the 
you get three different people with different professional backgrounds, they would have a very different way of thinking of how you're going to do an evaluation. So, so, so the, 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 these issues are there that I don't think they're necessarily any worse in the big data field, but that the, the dynamics are different. You have more influence of the, the, the experts who use big data because it's often difficult to understand what these techniques are. So they don't get questioned as much as if you say, we're gonna go into the field and do an interviews, people know what that is. And they say, well, and who are you going to interview? So you feel more comfortable questioning that. The, the other point which is very important, the, the digital divide of um, both, if you, particularly if you're using remote data collection, some people you can get access to easily, others you can't, not everybody has a mobile phone. In a household, even though there's a phone there, maybe the woman doesn't have access to it without her husband's permission. Or you can find that smaller NGOs might be getting excluded from evaluation contracts because they don't have the ability to do this, this large-scale fancy artificial intelligence. So the, the digital divide comes in in a lot of, of, of different ways. So there are all, all of these institutional structures which are organization which we we need to be aware of and the and just finally something which the es has been very interested in is the the fourth industrial revolution that we're moving into an, an age where data is going to be generated much faster integrated from from different sectors being used to look at much broader problems so that evaluators rather than just being asked to look at a particular small pilot project are going to be asked to look at you know what is the effect of, of all of government policies on addressing homelessness and that just requires a very different framework using very different kinds of, of of data so that's going to be be important as we we're already in the the fourth industrial revolution but it's just some very different ways of thinking including many of the people who are going to be assessing program performance won't be evaluators There'll be maybe consulting companies who set up an integrated information database and they will assess how your program's going without using any of the, the conventional evaluation techniques. So the message there is evaluators really need to get up to speed understanding these technologies if they don't want to gradually get squeezed out of a, a lot of the areas which they've traditionally monopolized. Michael, uh, you mentioned the digital divide as um, uh, one of the barriers um, but here I recall that uh, during this webinar series of EAS that I mentioned, Emerging Data Landscapes and MME, we received many questions from fellow evaluators about the cost mm -hmm. of uh, using big data. Mm -hmm. So beyond um, uh, the perception, and it's not perception, it's true, uh, there is a technical aptitude uh, which is required, but the, there are also a strong um, idea and perception that only big agencies like the World Bank or international uh, organizations, and not even all of them uh, can use big data. Um, and um, what is your view on this? Um, right. That, that's um, an important concern. Um, it's, it's useful to remember there's a lot of sources of big data are available very cheaply and e easily. F Facebook, WhatsApp, or um, Twitter, these all have free analytical tools, for example, so you can analyze if you want to you know, changing attitudes to women in government, for example, at almost no cost. You just have a certain level of expertise. You, you can get all of this data. Um, satellite maps, they're available free or at a very reduced cost down to a certain le level of, de of detail. 
you may only be able to get free images covering 30 meters. If you pay for it, it starts becoming much more expensive if, expensive if you want to get down to more, more detail. So firstly, there is a, a lot of data is, is available fairly, fairly cheaply. But, but one, one important issue is um, if you're just using, for example, artificial intelligence once, it can be very expensive. But if you're setting up a machine learning system where you'll be able to continue to collect and analyze data over the next 10 years of your program, you set it up once, and then a lot of these programs run almost automatically. So if you take a longer time perspective um, and not just focusing on the startup costs, you may find that the that they're not so expensive. I'm, I'm not saying they're, they're free, but also... To compare, if you're bringing in, you're flying in consultants from Paris to Ouagadougou, and they're being paid in heaven knows how much each day, plus another you know, $500 a day for their um, hotel. Um, th th these costs can be can be quite high. So you, you need to understand what are what are the costs which you're you're comparing. So the message is there's a lot of big data which is available um, relatively cheaply or free. And also, if you're using it to set up your long-term systems, and if, if you're um, looking at these costs over a number of years, then they, they may not be so, so, so high. So there's a real trade-off. Can you work with uh, lo lower um, resolution satellite images free, or do you need to spend a lot of money to be able to get down to an analyzing one, one meter squares? Um, so th there are... There are issues. Um, a big issue for a lot of organizations is also just the um, access to the, the technical expertise, which is quite difficult. The, the, these people are very much in demand, and so an NGO can't compete with you know, uh, the Google Office for Africa or whatever uh, in, in terms of what they can pay. So just getting access to the, the technical expertise can be a challenge. Thank you very much, Michael, uh, for your words of wisdom and um, warning and encouragement at the same time. And this was the end of our podcast episode with Michael Bamberger on possible sources of bias and using big data in evaluation. So once again, thank you very much, Michael, for the interview and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We hope you will join us again for our next episodes. Goodbye. Bye.